All right, thank you guys. Let's open our Bibles this morning to James and uh, chapter 4. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition through this uh, fascinating study, certainly a challenging study that we have all faced. And a friend and I were having lunch Sunday and, or this week, and uh, we were talking about this series through James and just how it's just, uh, it's a book that's just so up in your grill and uh, just up in your face. And uh, it's really challenging, I think, for all of us to hear the words from the brother of, of Jesus. And he pointed out, said, well, at least we know it's only five chapters long. So that's a good thing. Only a couple more chapters to go in this. But uh, let me join with Justin in welcoming you if you're a guest this morning. We're so glad that you're here to be a part of our worship experience, whether in person or online. And we do hope that during the course of this service, as we have uh, been able to sing songs of worship and praise and adoration as we hear the word of God proclaimed, it is certainly our hope and our anticipation that God would stir in each one of our hearts and challenge us to become the people that he has designed us and created us uh, to be. And we would love to help you in that uh, faith journey and that process. And for some of you, if that means... desiring to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, uh, we hope that you would text FL Respond uh, to the number provided for you, 833-571-3475. Or maybe as a follower of Christ, you want to know how to become a part of this church family. It's a, a vital part of the faith experience uh, that we immerse ourselves into a church family, into a local community of, of believers. And we would love to help you with that as well. So uh, take opportunity during the course of the service or during the week uh, to text us and let us know how we can come alongside side you. As we, as we come to, to chapter 4, we, we are in the middle of what has been an extensive session, a section that began back in chapter 3 and verse 1, where uh, James is dealing specifically with, with teachers, and he is concerned with those teachers that have caused uh, strife and division within, uh, within the body of, of Christ. And it's a rather extensive section. It goes all the way from the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll come to a conclusion next week uh, in chapter 4 and in verse 12. And uh, James has very real concern for those that would hold the office of, of teaching. And, and before we withdraw ourselves from the message and say, well, that really doesn't pertain to me, as I pointed out when we began this section, there is a sense in which we are all teachers, Are we not? I mean, you may not have the office of of a teacher. You may not teach a class. But is it not true that we are all teachers? When we go out into our respective worlds each day, each morning, we are, in a sense, teaching those around us uh, what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ, and what that looks like. And so don't disengage yourself from this, knowing that James is addressing teachers specifically. I believe he's addressing us, all of us who have been entrusted with the gospel. Well, let's begin this way. Imagine going to the doctor and you think this is going to be a routine chest x-ray that he has ordered for you. And he comes back after examining that routine chest x-ray and he tells you that you, that you he asks you if you knew that you had a, a very rare genetic condition known as situs inversus. It is rare, not as rare as I thought it would be. Apparently, it presents itself in one out of 10,000. To me, that's not that rare. But one out of 10,000 have this condition, this genetic condition, situs in versus. It's where the organs of the chest and the abdomen are presenting themselves in, in mirror fashion. 
Apparently, the, when the body is developing and the development of the human body, it, uh, the organs of the chest and the abdomen uh, develop themselves from a left to right fashion. But when you have situs inversus, when you have that condition, they, they present themselves in a mirrored fashion. So in other words, if, if you were to have a, an attack of appendicitis, instead of it presenting itself in the lower right, lower right quadrant of your abdomen, it would be on, on the left side. Same thing with gallbladder. If you started having manifestation of gallbladder issues, instead of the upper right quadrant, it would be on the upper left quadrant. In that same vein, your heart even is on the right side instead of the left side. I think it would be kind of alarming to find out that you have that condition. But the good news is, in my cursory reading and reading up on that, my, the good news is, is that you can live with that condition. It's really, uh, you can live with it for the most part. Most people can without any kind of, of um, you know, negative conditions, any kind of, of disability. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that there is another form of situs inversus that has deadly eternal consequences. That is what I'm calling this morning spiritual situs inversus. It's when your heart is in the wrong place. You see, that's the very concern of James in this passage of scripture this morning since 3-1. He has been trying to, uh, to correct these, these teachers. He's been expressing great concern for, for these teachers. And we could go back to chapter 3 and we could see his emphasis on the tongue and how they have been wrongly using the tongue to create, uh, to create rivals and factions and bring division to, to the community of faith. And James, as a pastor, is very concerned about those that, that would hold the office of teacher within the body of of Christ. And he sees these factious personalities, these fractious personalities that are causing division within the body of Christ. And he says they are being motivated as we saw last week. He says that in chapter three, these are motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That this originates because they, they operate and they live their lives, even their teaching office from a wisdom that is not from above, that is a wisdom that is from below, what he calls wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic in verse 15. And so James is, is very much concerned about, about those that are holding this, this office and are using it in a way that, that is wrong, in a way that is shameful, in a way that, that is self-serving. You know, what we're going to see here, as pointed as we may have think, that, that we may think James has been to this point, James becomes even more pointed. Now as chapter 4 opens, and he, as he is addressing those whose heart is in the wrong place. He begins in verse 1, in verses 1 through 3, talking about the source of origination. He says, what is the source? He's asking a rhetorical question. He's framing the question, not looking for an answer. He's going to offer the answer. He's framing the rhetorical question so that he can answer. He knows what the answer is. For what is the source of quarrels and conflicts 
among you. Is the source not your pleasures that, that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. James uses some interesting phraseology and verbiage here that I think needs to be unpackaged more fully. To really appreciate what he is saying, notice there in, in verse 1 again, he says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? All this behavior that he has described back in chapter 3, he's saying, now then, we're seeing the results. We're seeing the fruition of your wisdom from below. We're seeing the fruition within the greater body of Christ, the larger body of Christ. Now we're seeing the result of your bitter jealousy and your selfish ambition, your motivation from this wisdom from below. What it has created is quarrels and conflicts within the body. Is the source then not your pleasures that wage war? Literally, swording, sorting. It's militaristic language that is being utilized. Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? In other words, these things, these negative things that are working in you, these destructive things that are warring within you, your bitter jealousy, your selfish ambition, your desire for power and position and exclusiveness, what wars within you has created war within the body of Christ. I'm not surprised that James would utilize war language. He's writing to a people that are to be a unique and distinctive community and specifically those that would have leadership roles within that greater body of the community of faith. But it is a culture of zealots, a culture of individuals, of aberrant groups that are willing to use violence to achieve their ends. And sadly, we have seen those that would be the people of God trying to utilize warring methodologies, the world's methodologies, seeing the people of God using warring mechanisms to achieve, ironically, the peace of God and failed miserably. Oh, we see it in, in the Old Testament over and over again. The warring, the approach to war and warring methodologies to achieve spiritual ends. And we see it in the zealots in, in the New Testament as they are portrayed as, as a warring, angry, rebellious kind of, of personality. It's continued through, through church history at uh, the bloody battles of Nicaea. You see it in the days of, of Constantine. You see it in, in, in the Inquisition. You, you, you see it in, in, the, in the Reformation, in the Crusades. You, you see it all the way in Christian history. These attempts to use worldly, machine, uh, worldly machines and worldly methodologies, warring methodologies, to find peace, ironically and fails miserably time and time again. And so he'll continue on in that same vein. 
And he says in verse 2, you lust. That's really a play off that same word that's translated zealot elsewhere. You, you, you have a zeal, you lust and, and do not have, so you, so you commit murder. There's no reason to think that literal murder has taken place to quieten their opponents. It could have. But he could be borrowing, James could be borrowing from, from the teachings of his brother Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount, who in describing our hate for others, that uh, when we hate someone, we, we are in a way murdering them. We're diminishing them and saying they are, not, they are not worthy. It means we have failed to see them as someone that is created in the image of God. So you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are, you are envious and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You ask wrongly. Now, we really need to pay attention here, I think, in, our, in the Western church, in the culture of our, of our Western church, because I think too often we think of prayer in terms of a rabbit's foot. That somehow prayer is, is our winding up of the jack-in-the-box, and that if I pray the formula just right, or if I use the right phraseology, if I, if I, if I use the right formula, then God's going to pop out, and God is somehow obligated to meet my every desire and my every whim. No, James is pointing out something that needs to be here. There is a right way to pray and there is a wrong way to pray. You ask, verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You know, I think he hears the words of his brother Jesus in, in his ear when Jesus says, you, if you ask, you shall receive. And what we need to realize, church, is that for all these little New Testament proof texts that we use to talk about prayer, just name it and claim it. Oh, just, just ask and you will receive, claiming it for myself. You, you need to consider the context because in those contexts where Jesus speaks of such things and Paul would write of such things, there's a context that says the assumption is, is that you are praying with the right heart. That your heart and your passion is the kingdom of God, the purposes of God, uh, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among men. This has nothing to do with, with your selfish wants. This has nothing to do with your bitter jealousy, your envy, your longing for power, your longing for things. This is not to answer the first world problems that, that we conjure up for ourselves. James says their motives are misplaced. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. So your concern is your selfish ambition, your own selfish desires, you, your wanting, your, your, your desire for, for exclusiveness. And James isn't saying you're not, you're not praying, you're just praying wrongly. You're praying out of a desire for, for your own pleasures, for your own desire. Listen, church, the uh, prayer, and, and, and James uses a, <laughs> such an insightful word here when he talks about spending in relationship to prayer. That makes prayer 
the symbolism is, is that, is that prayer is something like, like capital and currency. You're misspending the currency of prayer that is yours as, as a child of God. You're misspending, you're, you're spending the, the capital of prayer, the currency of prayer uh, at some storefront of your wants and desires. It's a misappropriation of funds. Oh, James knows that the prayer that, that is answered, the, the prayer that God responds to, it emerges from a heart that understands the heart and the mind and the will and the purposes of God, that that is your passion and your desire to see the will of God fulfilled. How are you, church, spending your prayer life? What is it that that motivates you in your prayers to the Father? Is it to align your heart, your mind, your will to the heart and the mind and the will of God? Or is it something that you're spending, that you're misappropriation, misappropriating at the storefront of what God would desire for you to have and to experience? James moves from that from this source of origination, the problem with their quarrels and their conflicts from where it comes. But he moves in verse four, notice, to an understood implication. There's, there's an implication here that, that they should fully understand. He says in verse four, you adulteresses, do you not know? There's the assumption, they do know. Do you not know? He asked. He knows they know. See, knowing's never the issue, is it? In the life of faith, the life of obedience, I, I never really have to scratch my head, walk a hole in the carpet, a path in the carpet, praying, oh God, reveal your will to me. Let me know your mind and your will. And we can try to spiritualize it if we want to. It's really no mystery what the will is, what God would desire. The issue is not knowing, but doing. James knows they know the difference. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, and this is really a paraphrase of what he's going to quote next from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. He's just paraphrasing it here. Or, or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed, and here's Proverbs 3. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now the answer to the envy, the answer to their warring lust, the answer to their divisive tongues, the answer to their bitter jealousy and their selfish ambition is God's grace. And James is gonna, James will talk more about that in verses seven to, through 10. But right now there's so much more that we need to understand what James has alluded to here in verse four, you adulteresses. 
That's a strong word. That's a strong label to attach to someone. Now, don't miss what James, the pastor, is doing. James, as a pastor, is seeking to act redemptively. He would love nothing more than for these teachers that that have gone off rail, that have their own agendas now, want to do their own thing apart from everybody else. James' prayer, his hope, desire is that that they'll repent, they'll come back to being a part of, of the greater faith community, not that little aberrant group out here that wants to do their own thing that wants to become a warring faction, that wants to rebel against against the oppressors, that wants to do the very thing that is the opposite of the heart and the mind and the will of God, the God of peace, the God that is not the author of confusion and chaos. And what James is doing, he's not trying to sugarcoat it at all. He's not trying to, he's not sitting here talking about, about, about how much God tried to sway them over with the love of God. Listen, they have taught the love of God, the mercies of God. These are a people that, that claim to have been, been saved by grace through faith. James is changing methodologies. He's trying to shame them now. Shame and guilt. Those are pretty good tools sometimes to try to awaken someone, to bring them back to where they, they should be. And so to be labeled as, as an adulteress, that, that is a shaming label to be put on someone in the hope that they will repent and they'll come back to their senses. You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, the interesting thing about the term adulteress or an adulterer, especially in, in, relationship, in, 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 this, in this symbiotic relationship between God, between Yahweh and his, his people, uh, Hosea was really the first prophet, if you will, to, uh, to take this metaphor of marriage and to apply it to, uh, to the community of faith and, and, and their God, Yahweh. He was really the first one to use this as an example of, of the intimacy and the kinship that is to characterize uh, God's people's, relate, their relationship with their God. And also to paint a picture of when, of when infidelity makes its way in, into that relationship and brings brokenness in, into, that, into that relationship. And, and, what, and what was begun and what was done by Hosea, uh, we see the other prophets, Isaiah would pick up on that, Jeremiah would pick up on that, Ezekiel would pick up on that same model. Even Jesus would take this idea, and Paul, would take this idea of marriage as a picture of the relationship and the intimacy that God desires with those that would be his people. And that is James' concern. What is the world seeing in you? And James' concerned about these kind of teachers that are driven by wisdom from below, that are demonic in their motivation, that are filled with selfish ambition, that want partisanship, that want to be exclusive, that want to be separate, that want to be rebellious. 
James' concern is, is that this impacts the overall witness and testimony of the church, the people of God, in the greater community in which they find themselves. Because it is the community of faith, the larger community of faith, that bears witness to the world of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And James' desire is, is, that, is that they see in God's people not chaos, not confusion, not division, but that they would see a sense of peace. Not the warring spirit of the world, not the mechanisms of the world, but a people that are uniquely different. James is concerned about the future of the church. He understands that at this infantile stage, there is nothing more important than the unity of the church and the preservation of the spirit of unity for the continuing witness of the church. That's what he's been saying since chapter one. There's so much more to this faith journey. There's so much more to being called the people of God than just the adversity of your moments right now. In fact, they would never escape from their oppression. But James says the greater testimony, the greater impact is the church in the future and the continuing legacy of a faith that has been entrusted to you. I think it, church, begs the question for us that we each one need to contemplate if we consider ourselves teachers of the faith. What is the future of the church? What is the future of the church? How does your life, how does your life look different from your neighbors? In, in the light of what James has said about, about friendliness with the world, that if I'm a friend of God, then, then I stand in conflict. I, I can't be a friend of, of the world. And I've thought about that, especially in, in the light of this ongoing study in James. What is the future of the church? What separates me from my neighbors around me? What if everybody went to church like me? Every one of us have to ask this, ask this question. What, in, what is the future of the church? If every confessing Christian goes to church like me, you're asking that about yourself. What's the future of the church if everybody goes to church like me? What is the future of the church if everyone gives like me, if everyone is a steward like me? What is the future of the church? What is the future of the church if I'm not being a different kind of employee, if I'm not being a different kind of spouse, a different kind of parent, then my neighbor, who may not be a confessing believer, do I have the same attitudes, the same approach as them? What is the future of the church if every member of the church is just like me? 
That's James' heartbeat as a pastor. It's the future ongoing witness and testimony to the world of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among men. And in that vein, he makes the appeal of exhortation here in verses 7 through 10. And what James does in these concluding verses is he offers 10 imperatives. And remember, as we, as we ended there in verse 6, James now is turning the corner from shaming to redeeming. That maybe you've been shamed enough, you're guilty enough in the light of, of what I've written to you. Now then maybe you're ready to turn. Come back to your senses. And so to do so, he offers these 10 imperatives. And a great many of these, as you will see, they're a command with a promise. And so he, he says there in, in verse 7, submit. There's your first one. First imperative, submit. Submit, therefore, to God. Therefore is always a transitional word, meaning based upon what was just previously said. God's longing to redeem you, to, to restore you. As great as the envy is in you, as great as the selfish ambition is in you, uh, James has written, grace far surpasses that. Grace can do a far greater work in you if you allow it to. Therefore, submit. Submit to God. Submit is an interesting word. It's a, it's a word that was normally associated with the order of a household. That is, God has ordered, his, his creation has an order. God has a, a design. God has ordered things to be, to be a certain way. God has ordered how life is supposed to be lived. God has, has designed his created order, an order that has been broken by sin. But to submit yourself to God is a part of his created order. As a created people, we are accountable to our creator. Resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is how strongly James feels about this. Again, utilizing militaristic terms. Resistance is a military term. It means, it means to take a defensive posture and, and to stand strong. So resist and the devil will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you, it's a visual of repentance. This is what repentance looks like going back to God. Sin alienates us, leads us away from God. But when I draw near to God, this is the picture of repentance. I'm now moving toward God and what, what he would desire in life. Cleanse, purify, combination of hands and heart when it comes to expressing ourselves in worship. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And he's calling it what it is. Again, shaming. Sin is something that weighs heavy upon, upon humanity and somehow we have lost that concept of, that biblical concept of sin and the weight and the gravity of that, of how it alienates from God. And we wrongly assume, assume that because sin doesn't bother me, it must not bother God. There is no more egregious error in our thinking. 
cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Purity has to do with that single-minded devotion to the things of God. Then coupling several of these together, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Now, again, this relates back to what he just said about being a sinner, about, about sin. In your, in your arrogance, in your rebellion against God's design, in the abuse of your office as teacher, out of your selfish ambition, uh, you, you have arrogantly laughed about your behavior. As if it was something to which you were entitled. He's saying there needs to be a reversal instead of uh, laughing arrogantly, instead of flaunting your arrogance before God. Be miserable and mourn and weep. This is how you reflect an understanding and an appreciation of the gravity of sin and what it does upon humanity. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your gloom. Now let me tell you, church, don't misinterpret what, what James is doing here. I've tried to relate this back to sin and having a proper appreciation. These descriptive words just capture an appreciation for the, for the gravity of sin, the devastation of sin. Don't read this about being miserable and mourn and weep uh, and letting your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Don't think that means for you as a believer, you got to walk around like you've been baptized in pickle juice. Walking around with this sour look on your face. Like you're just miserable because you're a follower of Christ. That's not what James is talking about. In fact, it kind of reminds me of a humorous story told by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was speaking and teaching a, a class of young seminarians. It was a homiletics class, a preaching class. And, and he was talking about uh, proper expressions whenever uh, you're preaching on some respective Topic. And he said, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're preaching about heaven and, and eternal life and grace and redemption, he said, your face, when you're preaching, needs to, needs to light up with, with a heavenly joy and delight. He said, then when you have to preach on hell and damnation, he said, well, your ordinary faces will do fine. <laughs> Too often our ordinary faces don't do us justice as a people that are being redeemed by God. And then James wraps this up. And what James says in finality in verse 10 is really at the root of everything he has said previously. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You've been looking for the exaltation of men. You want power. You want position. You want to be treated exclusively. You've been wanting the exaltation of men for yourself, not to be part of a greater body. But listen, you humble yourself. And this is a profoundly, listen church, this is a profoundly theological statement. Because when you humble yourself, what you are saying and what you are doing is you recognize your position. By humbling myself, I'm acknowledging that I understand my position in the created order of God. That he is creator and I am not. 
And whenever you humble yourself before God, when you take your rightful place within his created order and you take the posture of humility, then, James says, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. And it's only in a posture of humility that you and I can ever get our heart back in the right place. Let's pray together. Father, might we recognize our place in your created order. Lord, in a, in a world that is driven by a model of success that finds its foundation in power and position and possessions, Father, I pray that we might aspire to a model, another model. In a world that is fragmented, in a world that is warring, in a world that is self-consuming and that is vicious, I pray, Lord, that we out in this world, that as we go forth into this world, that we would bear testimony of another way of doing life, one that is peaceful, one that is redemptive, one that will reflect the one by whom we are saved, the Prince of Peace himself, the Lord Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Again, let me encourage you, if there are decisions that you need to make that the Lord maybe has been laying on your heart, take the time to respond, FL Respond, to 833-571-3475. Keep that in mind as you're leaving here today, all right? Why don't we stand, and I'll pronounce a blessing and we'll be dismissed. Today's blessing comes from the Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Corinth, his closing words, and these are my closing words for you. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you.